You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruvain Yoshua Bubko of Beth Israel, Beth Aaron, in the star city of Quebec, Montreal itself, actually, Cote St. Luke. Rabbi Pupko, you've uh, been away for a couple of weeks and you've tested the waters of American tourism in Florida. What's your sense first of the pulse of American Jewry? You know, if you look around and talk to people, there's no question that a few things have changed. And here we are, I think, believe 90 or 91 days in to this war. Uh, number one, unfortunately, as, as anyone could expect, some of the unity that we uh, saw in Israel immediately after October 7th is unfortunately beginning to crack. Uh, there's disputes between members of families who have, uh, uh, who have people in, uh, in Gaza held hostage about the right approach. Uh, you, have, you hear more criticism of the government's efforts in that, regar- in that regard. You had a dispute at the cabinet last night about uh, the announcement from the, the chief of staff that there was going to be an internal army investigation as to its preparedness before October 7th. And the minute some minister is criticizing that, you obviously have the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, in a couple of rulings this week that put that issue back on the table, although uh, overwhelmingly the government has decided uh, wisely not to talk about it until after uh, major conflict has come to an end. You, you saw some division in the American Jewish community over Claudine Gay. I think we were all very lucky that the issue wasn't only Israel and anti-Semitism. It was also plagiarism, which was the decisive issue. In terms of Claudine Gay, I mean, I, I it really is something which I don't care for because, you know, I we all know Harvard for years already has sort of like delegitimized itself in terms of it being a uh, place to clamp on free speech. And But what I what I saw was is that Claudine Gay's op-ed, although I didn't read it through in the New York Times, and what is his name, Ibram Kendi and others, they're all saying that this is a, a trap laid by not just Republicans, that this was a trap laid by Jewish groups. I, listen, they were careful not to say it explicitly, but they certainly... Oh, it definitely was implied. implied. I think Kendi yeah, yeah. mentioned the names of the... Uh, oh, yeah, the donors, the major donors. The donors, listed. and he mentioned how they are proponents of genocide in, 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 in Palestine. Right. So it, it almost seemed like a victory and a defeat at the same time. No, listen. I think it's. I, listen. I think it's. A, it's a victory because it sends a message to universities across the continent, and that's important. And listen. I have to tell you. A couple of weeks before she resigned, a colleague of hers at Harvard, Danielle Allen, wrote a very long and very thoughtful piece in the Washington Post about how to approach these issues uh, with nuance and care and sensitivity, and, and it's worth reading. She's a professor at Harvard herself, an African-American woman herself. And she laid out, you know, uh, some of the, the intelligent uh, ways to approach this. The question is, listen, it's a legitimate question. There are legitimate questions here. And even though we have strongly held opinions uh, emotionally and intellectually about some of the stuff that's gone on, 
we need to try to think as objectively as possible. If you're a university president, do you ban the expression from the river to the sea? Now, you and I both know that that means a wiping out of uh, of Jews. That that's the impl- that, that that's the clear understanding of that expression for those who originated the expression. Okay, that's clear. But it's also clear that the students chanting it, if asked, have no idea what it means. Also, it can be interpreted as simply having a Palestinian state with all the Jews still alive. It doesn't necessarily mean genocide. We know absurd, that is, logically. But the question is, when you value free speech, do you allow the expression from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free? Can we throw in the intifada? Yeah, globalize the intifada. Globalize the intifada. Let's throw that in, too. And we know that means globalize means that in Cote St. Luke and in Hillside, New Jersey, the intifada must go on. Okay, now... When, when, when students yell revolution, I mean, that's what they think when they're saying it's a father, right? Revolution. They're saying revolution. Okay, is that a call for genocide? But here's the, here's the complicating factor, is what you said, and that's the key point here. The key point is not whether or not globalized the Intifada from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is a call for genocide and therefore should be banned. That's not the question, because the way the universities have organized themselves over the last decade or so, if not more, is that the sensitivities of minority groups uh, are, are to be protected, uh, that you can't say things which, uh, which hurts the sensitivities of people, that they even say things like words are violence. So if you can't misgender somebody or even get up and say America is a meritocracy or get up and say, uh, with hard work, anybody can make it here. Or everyone should be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the character of their soul, as Martin Luther King said. And that's called racist and offensive. You can be banned from that. They have raised the bar, raised the, or expanded the boundaries of unacceptable speech. So when they start talking about the hallowed principle of free speech, only when it applies to things that offend Jews, uh, obviously, you know, uh, th- that's a defense that will fall apart. And that's what I think destroyed the uh, the university presidents as, you know, uh, certainly their inability to answer a simple question about genocide. But the point is they were all seen as hypocrites because everyone listening knows that they do not believe in free speech, that they do not protect free speech, that there are, prote- that there are groups which are granted protection and no matter what offends is prohibited. And that protection is not does not include the Jewish community. Now, I would now, so you have two you have two approaches here. One approach is I want to be part of that basket of protected groups, right? I want to be in there, right? The other approach is no free speech, but free speech for all. Listen, I, I hate making this point because you know I find both so offensive, but. You know, when the January 6th guys talk, you know, about, you know, about what happened on Capitol Hill and, you know, after the uh, after Trump lost the election and they compare the prosecutions of the demonstrators on January 6th to the prosecutions during Black Lives Matter, they have a point. 
there are groups which are accorded indulgence, right, and tolerance for their violent riots, and there are groups that are not. And there's no question, there's not a single standard here. You know, I, I know you, I mentioned how you were on vacation. Uh, one of the, the prime vacation days and return days was last week, and uh, Kennedy Airport was essentially closed for traffic moving, people missed flights and mass, and this was a blip. It wasn't even reported anywhere. I think outside of the local news here, there were there were demonstrations, protesting demonstrations, uh, blocking the Belt Parkway, blocking uh, the Van Wyck Expressway, which those of you our listeners know are the approach to Kennedy. And and here again we see the types of of. Unci- you know, uncivil behavior. Uh, really, I would call it, you know, sort of like terrorism in a certain sense. Yes, nobody got killed, but can you imagine what it is to to rip out the kishkas of people who are trying to get home or get there for Christmas or New Year's? Listen, the police are given certain instructions about how to handle demonstrations. They are very wary of making arrests in the middle of a demonstration because it has the potential of inflaming the crowd worse. But the Wall Street Journal had a fascinating uh, idea about how to deal with these demonstrations, which is to start civil suits against the organizers and the participants. I mean, that's the, you know, that's, that's, a, that's illegal confinement. You know, it's, uh, it's certainly they can be sued and, to, and just simply harass them legally and to entangle them in court is not a bad idea. It might be hard getting, you know, grainy cell phone footage of people, uh, you know, right. in, in, in a December evening, you know, b- putting their cars on exit ramps, not allowing people to get to their sure, planes. But the point is, you know, it, it, we know who the organizers are. They, the police know who they are. And there, there, there has to be some legal, legal, legal remedy to this and, um, uh, to allow this to go on. Listen, also on university campuses, uh, you know, when a professor of, I don't know, mathematics uh, starts lecturing on the Middle East, uh, that's wrong. You know, universities have to start clamping down on what's called the abuse of podium when they allow their classrooms to be, you know, to be transformed from education to uh, to, to uh uh, to really what it is. We have to be careful, of course, that that uh, standard now doesn't apply to rabbis, of course. That, uh, <laughs> yeah, as you well know, there are no standards for rabbis. BB wrote, and I thought it was a very a measured uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal. You saw it on December 25th. He sort of laid out the manifesto. He says, this is what Israel is going to do. Uh, we're going to be there for a couple of months. It's going to be long. We, the PA doesn't make any sense. We have to have security, et cetera, et cetera. But, but Bibi's statement sort of is a harbinger for the fact that the war has changed. They, they have sent a lot of the reservists home. There's a little more of pinpoint uh, stuff going on. I, we know the Lebanon, uh, Lebanon killing, of course, was, was, was Israel. It, it, it isn't, you know, the pedal to the metal anymore. I, I don't know. Listen, I, I read a lot, and it's, it's, it's not a simple story. There is intense fighting going on in Khan Yunus. It seems to be uh, targeted to, to, you know, uh, in, in an attempt to find the leadership uh, of Hamas. But also, there, I mean, every day you read more about arms being found, booby-trapped homes being found. You know, and t- the tunnels are daunting challenge. Uh, the fighting is intense uh, in Khan Yunus. And, and again, there's still pockets of resistance, apparently in the north even. So the fighting is going on intensely. I believe you are correct that the, that the long-term plan for Gaza is to degrade their ability to, uh, to attack Israel ever again. 
uh, to eliminate uh, the leadership, but to remain there. There's going to be a dispute with Egypt over the Rafa crossing, uh, the Philadelphia route, uh, but connecting Gaza to, um, uh, to, to Egypt is going to be problematic because apparently all the smuggling came through there and some of it again through the, uh, through the sea. And Israel's going to need to maintain control there. On which side of that line, who knows? Uh, Israel's going to carve out a buffer zone. They've begun to do that between Gaza and, and Israel. They're also going to keep, uh, I think, the, the, the intersection of Gaza to two sectors, north and south. That will remain. You're going to have Israeli troops stationed, you know, in, in, the, in the middle of Gaza and continuous ongoing raids. It's, listen, uh, if you've been paying attention, most people haven't, to what's been going on in Janine and other places in the West Bank uh, with continuous raids. Gaza is going to turn into one large Janine where Israel is going to be sitting on the outskirts going in when they, ha- when, when they have the, uh, the need or the, or the opportunity. And, and that's what Gaza is going to turn into. This is, there's not going to be a clearly defined end to this. Is the emergency government on its way out? Is it going to stay for the whole next year? I mean, where is there going to be? It's hard to know. Listen, there's no question that I hate to say it, but there are political advantages to a never-ending conflict for Bibi. Because it was always said, when this ends, you know, Bibi will have to face, you know, the music. But when this ends is becoming much more ambiguous. I know there was something in the Haaretz, which, you know, we, we've heaped calumny upon in our discussions, but there was something in Haaretz saying that in Eretz Yisrael, it's very hard to get people to talk about the Palestinian uh, death tolls that, that are, they keep on being promoted. It's like a subject that the Israelis are not wanting to think and talk about. But again, it's being reminded, as we know, that I think South Africa, I think brought up into the to the Hague, that is the what is the world court, that Israel is guilty right now of genocide and needs to be condemned. Right. So, uh, listen, um, you know, Israel takes it seriously. I'm not sure that's necessary. I think it can be dismissed. I mean, uh, Israel's not a signatory, uh, 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 you know, to the establishment of that court. Uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough challenge. I mean, uh, Israel's concerned about sanctions. Israel's concerned about arrest warrants being issued against military and political leaders if they go to Europe. So they, they, they feel the need to defend uh, in, in that arena, although it's certainly, uh, you know, not, you know, you know, you can easily be cynical about its objectivity. Listen, I think any rational, objective observer of the last 20 years of conflict in the Middle East will come to the very persuasive conclusion that uh, Israel has done more to protect uh, civilian life in Gaza than the Americans or, or others did in their battles against ISIS and in Syria and Iraq. Right. I mean, but uh, again, we know those look, arguments are going to fall on deaf ears. There is, I, I saw a vart this morning um, that was in the name of the great Jewish, brilliant Talmud Chacham and martyr of the Warsaw Ghetto, Rav Menachem Zemba. Rav Menachem Zemba uh, looked at the famous Maimar Chazal, Omer Reb Shimon, Halocha Esav Soyne Liyakov. So Rav Menachem Zemba asked, hmm, Rav Shimon. Rav Shimon is usually the one who is Dirish time the bikr. He's always the one looking for an idea. He's looking for the, the, the logical, emotional, ethical, elevated idea, sometimes even Kabbalistic idea of all mitzvos. And here he uses this strange term, halacha. So Rav Nachum Zembo said, he, he said that because Shimon Bar Yochai was able to see that Jew hatred 
isn't rational and doesn't have a specific cause that can be dealt with. If it's because the Jews are poor and a grotesque parasite on the community, okay, let them now be wealthy and be involved. Oh, now they're taking over. It always changes. He said that, and I, I think it's important to know, halacha, we can't really figure it out. It's like halacha that can't be necessarily divined. And, and that doesn't portend well for any argument that can be made in the world court or anywhere else. Listen, you know, I, I, I was recently at an event where a very good friend of mine was celebrating uh, this, uh, of, uh, of her daughter. And she's been involved in, you know, advocating for Israel, fighting anti-Semitism. And I made a joke. I, when I, you know, when I spoke about her, I said she's been fighting anti-Semitism for 25 years. Then I paused and I go, apparently not very successfully. <laughs> now, and, and the point is, you know, the Jewish communities of, of North America have spent so much time and energy and resources over the last 60 years on community building, on allying with other uh, communities, on interfaith dialogue, on education, and on uh, promoting Israel, and uh, acting as responsible citizens and contributing to a myriad of causes, leading a myriad of causes, taking their rightful place as proud Americans, proud Canadians. If you look at the record of Jewish engagement in North America, it's been remarkable. And they've done everything right. Everything right. You can call them naive. Yeah. I, again, I think it just underscores uh, Rav Menachem Zemba's point. One of the things that Bibi wrote in the Wall Street Journal editorial, when he talked about the big goal for Gaza is to change the educational outlook of its people. Many have invoked Germany and Japan uh, as models for how you can actually have a thriving pacifist type of society when years, just years before they had been military. Right. Uh, so bear with me here for a second. Whether this is possible today, almost 100 years later, is, is, is a question. However, I just want to lead into what he was talking about in terms of Japan. We know that although the Japanese uh, were willing to follow Hirohito, they were willing to spread allegiance to their emperor, become kamikaze pilots, and spread the great Nippon power everywhere. I think some of it, and I can't say this about Germany, I think some of it is based on Japanese society, uh, Japanese collective society in terms of following the orders of who's in charge. And I think that was on display in a remarkable event. That it's almost, a, they're calling it a, a, a New Year's miracle of an event that happened in the Tokyo airport where a, uh, it's such an incredible story. It was a, I think a Japanese Coast Guard plane that had been ferrying emergency supplies to earthquake victims landed on the same runway that a huge Airbus was also taxiing. I think they were taking off. Whatever it is, they, uh, the, the passenger plane collided with the Coast Guard plane. Five of the six people on the Coast Guard plane were killed. Everyone on the passenger plane survived. My first thought was, if God forbid it was an LL plane, everyone would be dead. Because orderly exits from airplane is not exactly a Jewish characteristic. <laughs> right. And, 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 and the... I would add one thing. I would add what you, you described Japanese society, they follow orders. I, I think it's a little, I, I, I would put it in a more positive way. I think 
that the two stark stereotypes, which are no longer completely true, but, you know, the American individualism, the lonely cowboy on the range, and uh, the, the Asian model, the Japanese model of, of, of not wanting to stick up, stick your head up too high, uh, which is disdains that kind of uh, flamboyant individualism that is more of a collectivist or community uh, culture. Uh, there's, no, there's no question that that attitude to that sensibility save lives in this case i don't think we america inculcated that into japan i think that was that's been part of japan oh, no, that was always though that's japanese culture but I, I listen bb's point though about the about education is true but just because his point is true doesn't mean you can actually do much about it the question is let's say israel succeeds gets rid of UNRWA, right uh let, let's say let's say you know, there's a current dispute about the transfer of tax dollars that the Israelis are, are holding back the amount of money that PA you know sends to Gaza or or, pay, or the pay for slave for terrorist uh, uh, families and all that stuff. And the, Biden is pushing you know a transfer of those funds. There was a heated argument between Biden and and Netanyahu uh, on this issue, and Biden's obviously trying to mollify some of his left wing critics uh, for his uh, support of Israel. So we're trying to get certain uh, things done for the Palestinians, like humanitarian aid, the transfer of tax dollars, and that, and that kind of stuff. And you see a conflict over that. The question is, you know, who's going to be in charge in Gaza? So they're talking now about clans and families and, and, or other Arab countries. It's hard to imagine an ideology, which is so pervasive throughout the Muslim Middle East, that is so that is so many deep historical roots that is deeply tied to their to their understanding of, of their own religion. It's very hard to imagine, you know, a successful effort like took place in Germany where you had denazification. It's just hard to imagine, you know, how successful it can be, uh, you know, in a world where you know, there, you know, there's there's so much interconnectedness between what goes on in I don't know in Jordan or Saudi Arabia and and the West Bank and Gaza, it's hard to imagine, you know, any, you know, remarkably successful effort to reprogram the culture. Especially, I think, if it's if the programmers are are the Jewish is the Jewish state. It's one thing, you know, it's it's one thing when in Japan where the GIs who were the victors were recognized as such when they came in after the bombs, the bombing of Hiroshima right. and Nagasaki. And, and they took on roles as governors and mayors of various cities in Japan. And again, I, I go back to, to my point. The Japanese realized they had to submit and they had to thrive somehow in submission. And I, that, that, that equation seems almost impossible when it's right. Jews versus Muslims. But um, like you said, you know, hopefully we, we will usher in a period of mole or its dea and things will be beyond uh, ethnicity and they will be about the, the pure truths okay. that could bind us. So that's about it, my All friends. Right. We shall see you. Rabbi Popko, take care. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cool. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.